back to another edition of the Look Again podcast. Today, we want to welcome our good friend and special guest, Eddie Stern. Eddie is the consummate definition of a yogi. Really deep dude, author, teacher, somebody that we actually met at the White House, like not on a tour or anything. We were actually invited to the White House for the roundtable discussion on complementary medicine. I think they had to hide it. They couldn't call it yoga or mindfulness or anything because Obama was in an election year. And then we bonded with Eddie uh, hanging out at the National Kids Yoga Conference because the four of us were the only guys there. We were doing our presentations in two separate rooms and decided to just freestyle it and do our presentation together. And then uh, look, we've been buddies ever since. When we go, we hung with him a few times in New York. It's great to have you on, Eddie. It's awesome to be here. So great to see you guys. Yeah, such a pleasure to have you. Yeah, man. Yeah, thanks so- for make, taking the time out. Oh man, I'll make all the time in the world for you guys. And the thing is, you do. Like I'm, I'm, I was telling, uh, I was talking to someone about this the other day. They they were asking about you and you being on the podcast. And I was like, you know, the cool thing about Eddie is like whenever we're in New York, even if it's just for a couple minutes, like you make the time to come hang, like no matter where we are, what we're doing, because we're usually in a bar. What, I mean, you know where to find us, but like you'll you'll stop through, say what's up. Like you always make time to hang, which is always really cool. Oh, man, of course. It's a blessing to see you guys. I love it. I I keep threatening to come down to Baltimore and I haven't made it. So um, I'm the one at fault here. We'll get you down here once all this COVID stuff is over. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. In 2024. <laughs> Hold on. You guys freestyled your talk at the White House. You guys like met at the White House and then you just, hey, you do yoga too. Let's freestyle a talk together. No, no, no. no. It so was, it, we we uh, met at the round table at the White House when they were discussing different, uh, I guess, contemplative practices that were helping heal people. Mm-hmm. And then we bonded there. And then at the kids yoga conference in D.C., uh, we were supposed to present in different rooms. And then we were like, you want to do this? Do, do you want to do this? And then we all just came into the into one room and just freestyled it. And, you know, of course, as we always do, all of us blew everyone's mind. Of course. <laughs> I mean, you know, when it's unplanned and you're just letting it flow, it all goes fine. No, we had a good time. That was totally spontaneous. And But we're basically doing the same kinds of things, just that you guys are much better at it than I am. So, you know, I just added in a few things here and there. The roundtable White House thing was was cool, though. That was the discussion on how to include complementary alternative practices into federal programs like state level, government level, like education, military, healthcare, stuff like that. So that was like a really interesting thing to be involved in. And not a whole lot came from it, honestly. I think everyone continued to do exactly what they were doing after it. I think the stumbling blocks for those things being included into federal programs that still remain the same. But, you know, little by little, I think that all of these practices, whether you call them yoga, meditation, or well-being practices, are becoming more and more accepted, uh, definitely within the medical fields, because you have a lot more doctors meditating, right? And a lot more doctors seeing the benefits of, of that stuff. I mean, Sharon Salzberg, who's one of all of our mentors, you know, she doctors love her. And, you know, and everyone's researching and studying meditation and yoga and seeing that wow, this is great for stress. It's great for heart disease. It's great for people not fighting with each other and stuff like that. So I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to keep working its way in little by little. I'm pretty positive. It's interesting to think how the medical facility is now coming to more preventative medicine, stretching, mind alterations, transformation of the body, transformation of the psyche, instead of just trying to like fix a wound or something like that. It, 
I really like seeing more mental, emotional, physical, psychological health being integrated and it transforming into physical health. Yeah. I mean, the two go hand in hand. Um, what we do to the body, we do to the mind and the emotions. And what we do to the mind and emotions then reflects out into the body. I, I think it's just a matter of patience, to tell you the truth, and keeping at it. So, for example, right now, there is a lot happening in the public psychology spheres of using ketamine and microdosing of mushrooms for healing for dealing with psychological trauma, for dealing with the dying process, with depression, all sorts of things. But back when Atman and Andre and Ali and I were kids, you know, like there was no chance of anyone ever thinking that psilocybin would be used for anything other than tripping and having maybe a spiritual experience and it was totally illegal. But now people are seeing in the quote unquote establishment the efficacy of those things in controlled environments in the right context and what benefits they have. So I think it's just a matter of time before the established medical fields continue to catch up with what yoga has to offer. And when I say yoga, I mean meditation as well. Mm. Interesting. When you just said that, Eddie, I'll let you ask the question in a couple of seconds, Ali. But it definitely uh, took me back to when our teacher was talking to us about the yugas and how certain people gravitate to the timeless information, the healing aspects of all the different things as you just said. And, you know, it takes a while for, you know, I guess our planet and solar system to get closer, closer to the grand center for the masses to be able to, I guess, understand the benefits and be okay with it. And it seems like, I guess, in the grand clock of things, uh, we're getting, we're in that transitional phase coming out of a darker age, going towards a light or towards a grand center. And, you know, I guess that's one of the reasons why a lot of these uh, taboo practices, you know, from 30, 40 years ago are now going mainstream. Yeah. I mean, um, I like how you say timeless practices and the timeless wisdom and the, the grand scheme of things is really a beautiful way of putting it because people keep on tapping into the same type of a wisdom, no matter what age it is. Right. So it's, it's always there for us. And I think that controlled environments are necessary. Like, like, okay, take, for example, when you're a teenager, if you have big constrictions put on when you have to come home, what you're allowed to do and all that, what do you do? You rebel and you go off and you go to places where you'll do those same things, but maybe in a dangerous setting or you're more likely, you know, to take risky behavior. And uh, of course, risky behavior is part of the fun of growing up and it's how we learn. But um, I mean, I know the same is true with you guys as it was for me that a lot of, I know a lot of people who didn't survive those same years that I was living through, you know. There are a lot of people who didn't make it into their 20s who I knew when I was a teenager because the thing that we were looking for was, well, I'll just speak from my own perspective or my own feelings or opinions about this. You know, I was on a quest and I wasn't living in a society which gave me the support for being on that quest, for knowing who I was, for knowing what the purpose of life was, like what the meaning of, of anything was. It was all, you know, graduate high school, go to university, which I never did, get a job. And to me, that wasn't meaning. And the, the meaning I was looking for was deep rooted, like, who am I? And like, what is the purpose of all this? And that kind of search, because it wasn't being supported in, in the society I was living in, 
led me to seek for meaning in either with punk rock music, where I found a lot of meaning, or later into psychedelics and drugs and things like that. And the psychedelics gave me a broader view of what was happening inside my own consciousness. And then that led me to yoga, which led me to stop doing drugs because I found everything that I needed in yoga. But that, that turning point of like looking for something deeper and not having anything to guide me other than like strict religious principles, like you could go to synagogue, you could go to church, but there wasn't any real spiritual support. Like my parents were great, so no fault to them. Um, it's just, that's not how they grew up either. But that spiritual longing that I had could have, it could have led me into a really dark place had I not been lucky enough to meet some people who said, oh, you know, you're on a spiritual quest. And th those words being implanted in me allowed me to not stop at drugs, but continue to look where a lot of people in that arena were getting stuck at that level because no one was giving them guidance saying, this is just a stepping stone for you to find out deeper meaning. You're doing these things because you're not happy. And you're not happy because you don't really know who you are. But if you can figure out a little bit who you are and how to find purpose, you're not going to need these things and you can keep going. So the resurgence of, of all of these types of modalities being used in the right context is really like one of the things that could have helped us a lot 30 years ago, 35 years ago, by saying, you know what? You're experimenting, you're seeking, let's seek in the right context so that you don't get stuck here and you don't throw away your life because you've, you've done the wrong thing. So I find it really interesting to see all this stuff happening. And, you know, there are other things about it that I think are terrible. Like I think the whole um, the legalization of marijuana, I find really upsetting because you have a bunch of white people who are investing in marijuana companies, making billions of dollars and um, black people and brown people and Latinos all over the country are have been sitting in jails for years and years and years and years for very petty marijuana crimes and um, their lives have been thrown away and now all of a sudden a bunch of white people are making tons of money for me that's nauseating i don't support any legalization of marijuana unless everyone who's in jail for a petty marijuana offense is freed and is given reparations for the lives and years that they lost so it's interesting because the, with the psychedelic movement, you don't have the same level of criminalization of, say, LSD that you have for selling marijuana. So it's a real kind of like there's racism even within the whole drug legalization movement. So anyway, I'm, I know that's not the question you asked me, but for whatever reason, that's where I ended up. So thanks for indulging me. No, nah, Eddie, but that was that was right along the path because we were going to ask you how you got into the practice, which is which is pretty much what you answered. So you were like, we're all in tune in the ether. So it worked out perfectly. But but what kept you on the path? Because, I mean, I feel like there are a lot of people who get introduced to psychedelics, spirituality, and they, they kind of dabble in it. Then things of the world pull them back. Like there's a lot of things that can pull you back, whether it's a partner, whether it's a job, whether it's. There's a lot of different things, worldly things that can pull you off of the path. Like what's kept you on the path and all, for all these years? The thing which has kept me on the path is that I love doing yoga. That's the only thing. I love doing yoga. It is a endlessly deep tradition. Like you can never get to the point where you feel you've learned anything if you're really paying attention. Like if you're paying attention with yoga and with studying the Hindu texts and all that, 
you you will always know that you've never learned anything. Like there's always deeper to go. There's always another text to read. There's always you know a, a nuance to to expose yourself to. So it's it's an infinitely rich tradition, and um, that's why um, I've always loved it. The feeling I have for it now is exactly the feeling I had for it when I was 18. Like there's no difference in how much I love yoga and how much I still want to learn. It just hasn't changed. Man, it's so awesome. I wish, I wish the viewers could see the video here because when he's talking, like all of us have like ear-to-ear -ear grins because we're in such agreement with what he's saying. It's just so powerful. Your words, it's beautiful to hear you say this. You know, similar, I think, to Ali Atman and I, you know, you go out in the world, you're all over the place, you're... You know, you're reminding people of all these amazing techniques and practices they can use to you know, help themselves and, and self-regulate or whatever you want to call it. I know when when we go out, when we instruct or remind people, or show people these techniques, we don't necessarily teach everything that our personal practices. You know, sometimes my personal practice is a little bit different than what I do if I'm going to go teach kids or go to, you know, a drug rehab center or a mental health facility, so on and so forth. Do you have particular practices that you do personally, it's like your jam. Like this is the one that you do. This is my favorite, whether it's a pose, a meditation, whatever it is. Do you have one that's like your go-to, you do it all the time? The mainstay of my practice is ritual, is doing worship, Hindu worship called puja. And that's something that I, that's really the core of my spiritual practice is worship. Chanting mantras and giving offerings and prayers. And those things I don't teach. There are certain ones that I do teach, but for the most part, the, the actual rituals that I follow that were taught to me, I don't teach those to anybody because it was just something I was initiated into doing for me to do. But in regards to asanas, I'll teach according to the people who are in front of me. So if it's kids, I'm going to teach like a kid. And if it's adults, I'll teach like as much of an adult as I can muster myself into being. <laughs> and... Um, so, but I don't hold back when it, it's like, I, I don't have any uh, thing that I hold back from teaching with asanas or for pranayamas. I only do it for age and experience appropriate. Um, my understanding is with um, the asana practice, you should not only eventually teach all you know, that, but you want your students to surpass you so they, that you're always creating better and better yogis and better and better teachers. I don't really consider myself a yogi, but I, I am a yoga practitioner. So I enjoy having the ability or the, or the opportunity to teach people the things that I learned that were really hard to do and see them do them probably with greater ease than I was able to, because as the generations go by, the skill and the facility for doing these things increases. And that's all. But it's good. You always keep something for yourself. You always keep something private something a little bit secret and in your heart. And that's your refuge that you go to. I love hearing this idea of you trying to teach your student to be better than you. And also it seems like you have a, a way of keeping yourself open to learning from anybody, from any situation. So it's, there's like this feedback that you can receive from others by being willing to teach them everything you know and also be willing to learn from them. But with that in mind, other than like the physical transformation from yoga and its practices, what else does yoga promote in people like in themselves? Is there any sort of like brain functioning? Is there any sort of like energetic 
behavioral transformation other than like a like a physical presence is there anything else and then also you're a man of my heart because the first thing you talked about is like microdosing psychedelics i'm a huge fan and i rewrote this little question to be like what is a use of psychedelics in yoga i don't think i've ever heard anyone talk about that like is it like a microdosing or some sort of trip report because um you sort of mentioned that you kind of like stopped doing drugs or whatever but now like we're using ketamine we're using psilocybin we're using dimethyltryptamine lsd um, marijuana we're using uh, psychedelics to help uh, emotional behavioral maybe even physical and i'm curious like what is the relationship between those two that's a big question i'm sorry that like i just got super excited like a while back ago <laughs> Yeah, well, within yoga practice itself, I don't know. I see that in, in psychiatric settings that these things are being used with great results. In healing-type settings, they're being used with great results. But as far as um, microdosing and practicing yoga, I really don't know if that's something people want to do or should do or need to do. So I can't really say. I don't do that myself. I haven't really done anything like that since I was about 18 or 19. Um, now I'm 53. So it's been a couple of years. So going back to like the original question, is there any sort of transformation that yoga gives you other than a physical being like a behavioral energetic? Is there anything else that you've noticed during your practice? Absolutely. I mean, there in yoga, there's no such thing as something being purely physical. It just doesn't exist because the mind body is a continuum. Uh, the mind body is a continuum and the mind and the spirit are a continuum as well. So the thing which impels us to existence or to life is, you know, using the mind, which uses a physical structure to exist and to, and to pattern and represent itself. There is no purely physical thing that can be done in yoga. So if you think that you're doing yoga postures and it's only physical, then you're probably not doing yoga. You might be doing yoga asanas. So, which is okay, like you can do yoga asanas and get physical benefits, but yoga itself, like the definition of it is that it has something to do with how you are structuring your mind. So for example, in Patanjali Yoga Sutra, which is the text of yoga that I follow along with most closely, there are many different texts, but this is one that I abide by. The second sutra, sutra means an aphorism, a short sentence, says yoga chittavritti nirodaha, which means that yoga is a process of nirodaha. Nirodaha is a selective choosing of which types of thought you want to have present in the field of your consciousness. Or the, we can use the word mind, but mind is a little bit different idea in the West than it is in, in the yoga system. So it doesn't say, and then in the things that are happening are vrittis, these are activities. A vritti is an activity which can manifest, manifest as a thought, but a thought can be a feeling, a sensation, an emotion, an idea, a memory, an intuition, it can be any of those things. It's not just like logical thinking of like, oh, I need to, you know, go get some washing up liquid with liquid for the dishwasher or whatever. The vrittis are the activities in the field of chitta, which I'll, I'll describe that word in a minute. Um, all of those activities are going to be those different things. There'll be sensations, there'll be memories, there'll be feelings, emotions, 
articulate thoughts, inarticulate thoughts, things that we can, can't quite put our finger on, but we know we're sensing something, all of that stuff, whether it's subtle, whether it's gross, that's an activity and that's called a vritti. And then where does it occur? It, it occurs in the field of chitta. The word chit means consciousness, means existence. And existence is an absolute. Existence always is. Just, that's all there is to it. Existence exists. But within existence, things happen. You know, things can take form and things can change. Like right now, we're all existing within existence. And we're also changing forms as we're sitting here right now, looking at our computer screens. So chit is existence, it's consciousness, and the ta at the end of it is indicating that something is happening within that field. So the field of consciousness, chit, ta, things are going to happen, changes are going to happen. And what's happening in that potential for change? Activities. And now what do I want to do with them? Well, I'm identifying with them. I'm identifying with the sound of the siren I hear right now, and I hope it doesn't interrupt us, or identify with the idea that I want to take a sip of coffee, or identify the idea with, I hope I don't say something really stupid because, you know, I love these guys and I want to sound smart on a podcast in case anyone listens to it. So these are three things happening in my mind right now. All right, those three honest things, and those are activities, right? So what do I want to do? I don't want to just obliterate all of the activities that are occurring because the sutra doesn't say sarvam vritti, which means all vrittis. It just says chitta vritti nirodha. I want to eliminate some of them. So I want to eliminate everything which is extraneous to where I want my present awareness to be. I want to eliminate all extraneous, unnecessary activities, except for where I want my awareness to be resting, or you could say focused, but not the kind of focus where like, you're really trying hard to concentrate. The kind of focus where it's just resting on that thing because it's so involved in it. It's so, so drawn to that one place. Where is that? So I want my awareness right now to be resting with you. That, and I don't want it to be resting in other places. And that way, whatever you ask me, I can respond to in the best way possible. So now I become in a state of responsivity to you and to this situation rather than imposing myself on the situation, imposing what I want an outcome of this podcast to be, what I want an outcome of how you think about me, what I want that to be. Instead of imposing my ideas and desires of a particular outcome, I, I don't. I turn it around so I become responsive because my awareness is present here with you. So whatever needs to unfold will unfold. Whatever needs to happen will happen. And it will be the unfoldment of nature. Just and this situation, and this patterning of all of us coming together in this moment of time, being together, because our patterns need to overlap for whatever reason, so something comes out from it, and to be present with that. So where is this occurring? That's the thing. All this, this chitta isn't happening in something called the mind, where we associate it with the brain and mental activity. The chitta is all the fields of activity of sensation, information, feeling, thought, memory, and uh, intuition, and, and subtle, subtle ideas. So that's going to be our body, going to be our breath, going to be our awareness, it's going to be the sense organs, and it's going to be our motivation. So chitta is existing in all of those places simultaneously, because our body is picking up information, like right now, 
I feel that it's cold in the room. That's an activity in the field of chitta. My sensing that it's cold here, my skin is feeling that. That's a thought my skin is having, right? That's a, a vitti my skin is having. So I'm just aware of that. So now if I put myself into a yoga pose, I'm molding the chitta, which is manifesting through my body in a way of focused awareness. If I'm breathing and holding my breath, then I'm molding the chitta, which is manifesting through the focused awareness in my breathing in a deliberate pattern of awareness. So anything we do with our body, anything we do with the breath in yoga is to create a deliberate pattern of awareness so that it affects the entire mind, body, field, organism. And then we come into an awareness state with our physical body. And yoga therefore is not really physical, but we use the idea of this physical body in order to affect a deeper state of awareness. What happens along the way is like, um, say I come to yoga and I have, um, I have stuff that I'm going through. You know, I have some sadness or I have some disappointments or I've had some, you know, some struggles in my life. And those struggles, you know, they're not just in my mind, but as you guys know, because you do a lot of trauma-informed work, they're in my nervous system. You know, they're, and if they're in my nervous system, then they're in my body too. So if I start twisting my body and twisting and moving my nervous system around, the things which are held in there, in this field of chitta of the nervous system, they're going to be released. They're going to get, they're going to kind of come up to the surface. And I'm going to feel these things. I'm going to see these things. And maybe if, you know, if I keep at it and I have the proper support, I can deal with these things. I can let them go. And I can move on to the next thing that, you know, that I need to, to work on. So yeah, yoga, when I first started doing it, this is what I was experiencing. It was never about just doing cool poses. I mean, I was young, so I was flexible, so I could do things without too much difficulty. But the effect was not of a physical achievement, like all of a sudden I could lift a lot of weights. The effect was like, wow. I never knew my body could do this. And because I'm experiencing my body doing this now, my consciousness is expanding. Like when I touched my toes for the first time, I was like, oh my God, I can touch those things. And my idea of my universe expanded. And that was the expansion of consciousness. So that wasn't just a physical thing. Wow. Anyway, I'm sorry if that was a long answer. But, um, you know. You you're so intelligent. I can just listen to you all day and I'm sure most of us can, but that's because I was talking for so long. <laughs> <laughs> but what was interesting is like, it seems as though yoga makes you focus on so many different things, but at the same time, it gives you ownership of a lot of them. And I think that can be scary when you first come to it and empowering at the same time. But you just made me kind of realize like how we can see that a bit more of just taking ownership of all aspects of like owning the space, owning how we feel about it, owning how our feelings process the actual feeling we're having and how we, you know, show it discomfort or excitement within our bodies and within our psyches as well. And it's just it's legit stuff. Yeah. Don't ever worry about being long winded with us uh, because you, you killed that shit. <laughs> you, you like the play of words there. But I'm sorry, I'm pretty corny, Eddie. All right, so question. 
Um, that was genius. <laughs> yeah, that was really good. I mean, I'm over here dying. That was, what is, that, was that, shit. that was one of your best ones of the year. It's so a bumper far. sticker right there. Ali don't want to slaugh too much, but he he knows that was a good one, man. That was really good. Nah, he gets like one really good one per quarter. So like, don't expect anything else really funny to like summer. But he's good right now. That's okay. All, All right. right. So, what about spring? You know. Andy, Ali, and I were really into like, or and still are into comic book and Star Wars. And, you know, we wanted to get like powers and, you know, save the world and save the planet. And uh, the book that's over Andy's shoulder is one of Yogi Bhajan's uh, manuals, uh, the survival kit. And it has like a lot of amazing uh, meditations in there that can tap you into that inherent energy that's sleep inside of us. It teaches you how to wake it up. And, you know, I know at first when we saw the book and talked to our teacher, we were like, whoa, man, like, you mean if we do yoga, we can, we can become like superheroes? Teach us this shit. And, you know, he was like, yeah, I mean, uh, it's a byproduct. It's not your end goal. Uh, and, you know, like you were saying about like psychedelics, like sometimes when people do awaken certain dormant powers in their body, they get stuck on that level and don't keep advancing. Um, I know with us, uh, when we started actually practicing yoga, it was very physical at first. And, you know, through our progression with our teacher, it got more and more subtle. Um, and I still remember first time we did like a, a deep meditation out by long needle ponds and, you know, by the lake. You know, after we came out of it, we slowly opened our eyes and we saw like little clear bubbles like floating around in the air. I was like, man, what in the hell is this shit, Uncle Will? And he was like, man, that's, you know, the energy in the air, man. You just, you know, tapped into it. You stored a lot of it in your body and it revealed itself to you. And, you know, that just wet my appetite and made me want more and more and more. And like I said, practice got more subtle where it was less on the mat and uh, more like, you know, sitting around his table doing mantras and like singing and him playing on his Damaru and, you know, him explaining it, that it's not just words, there's scientific formulas. So that just whet my appetite even more. And like you said, like, this is like an endless journey. And, you know, for me, that is what excites me about the practices that it never ends. And you talked about some of the things that excite you as a practitioner in your previous answer. I'm not sure if there are any other things that you want to share that excites you about being a practitioner. And, you know, I know uh, second part of the question, if, if you have anything else to add to that first one, but the second part is I know um, in teaching, we, you know, see the empathy that gets developed in some kids that have been through a lot of trauma that no one has really cared about them or loved them. So, you know, it, at first it's really hard for them to care and love for anyone else, let alone themselves. And I know seeing that develop in our students makes me excited about being a teacher and, you know, having them understand how powerful their bodies are, their minds are, is a beautiful thing. And I just want to know if, you know, there are certain things that you didn't already explain to us that excite you about being a practitioner. If it's, if you already said it, that's cool. And then secondly, you know, what excites you about uh, being a teacher? The, you know, what you mentioned about the empathy developing in the kids. This is something that was always really exciting with the school programs when we were training teachers how to teach simple, we called them wellness practices so they could be in the public schools, of course, in the South. And teachers reporting us to us that the incidences of kids acting out and getting suspended were dropping down radically like to next to nothing. 
that was always really encouraging to me. Like, wow, this stuff really, you know, you don't have to know a whole lot, be able to draw that innate tenderness out of a child or out of an adult. Um, in the yoga text of Patanjali, he speaks about a few different terms. And one of the terms that he uses in regards to the objects of the world is dharma. And the word dharma has a lot of meanings. It can mean duty, righteousness, religion, you know, your, your station in life. But it can also mean the inherent characteristic of anything. And so that when you meditate on um, particular objects that exist, the inherent characteristic or the inherent power of that thing will reveal itself to you. And then you take on momentarily or permanently that characteristic. And that's what a, a perfection is in Yoga Sutra, or sometimes called the power. But really, it's a perfection where the characteristic of the thing reveals itself. And some of those things are the meditation on friends and learning that friendship is one of the greatest powers or greatest strengths that we can have. And then meditating on or doing this deep awareness concentration on friendship like draws out this innate characteristic that we have in ourselves to care for each other. And that's a really cool thing. So sometimes people decide back in the sutra about, oh, you know, talk about wanting to fly or being two places at the same time. That's like, that's not liberation. That's a waste of whatever. That'll just block your progress. But there are other things happening in there that really are like, wow, this is, this is the greatest power to have, power of friendship. You know, I'm down with that. So I think that um, one of the things that really excites me about being a student is learning new things that expand my understanding about what I thought I already knew or already understood and going to just a deeper level of a basic understanding and uh, uh, learning a, something new about a word that I didn't know before or about a posture or about I'm having this pain and, oh, if I do this differently, all of a sudden that pain gets better. And I think what it is, is just by moving your awareness around to the words of other people and to the places in your body and to the things that you're exposing yourselves to, when you just move your awareness into places they don't normally go, the situation will teach you. Like, for example, say you're in a forward bend, sitting on the floor and you're holding on to your toes. Maybe... You're thinking about your hamstrings because you want them to stretch. Maybe you feel that your back is tight, so you try to like move your back more forward. But if instead you think about like, what's my pinky toe doing right now? What's the sensation behind my ears? Um, and you move your awareness to a place which is not the heart or the sort of the meat of the pose, all of a sudden that place will tell you, you, you move your awareness behind your ears and your ears will tell you, hey, you need to soften your shoulders and your face because you're holding tension and you do and then the whole chain of the back starts to relax and then all of a sudden it changes the whole pose so if we just shift our awareness away from where we think we're supposed to be focusing to a peripheral like subtle thing that other thing can teach us something and so that's what i like to do in in my practice and it's easy to do with the body but then it becomes harder to do with the breath and it's even harder to do with this thing we call thinking but if you move your awareness to other places of thinking, 
then it's uh wait i want to i'll take give you one solid example of that if i can i'm going to just read something to you this happened the day before yesterday what it was was that and this has to do with moving your mind to a different place i'll just answer the second part of your question and the thing that excites me about being a teacher is sharing those things with my students my own like little revelations or whatever okay so there was a south asian woman on instagram I don't know if you've heard of Instagram. It's this new thing. People like post pictures and Wait, stuff. Wait, Instagram? Is that what they call it? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's going to blow up, man. It's going gonna, it's gonna to blow up. Yeah. Get it before it's too late. <laughs> and so she was speaking about a cultural appropriation of yoga in the Netherlands where she lives. Someone made a comment and tagged me in the comment saying, you know, I don't know, they'd seen me take part in these discussions before or like they were someone that, you know, respected India a lot because I've been going there. So anyway, they tagged me. You know, I try to respond as much as I can in these conversations that are happening on Instagram. It's the only social media that I use. And I, I said, you know, I hear you. I think that this cultural appropriation of yoga by Westerners and particularly by the white population is a really important conversation to be had in America we're you know we're so concerned with our rights and things like that that we think that we have the right to do anything that we want but um really teaching yoga is not a right teaching yoga is a privilege and, you know it's not that India has just given us this gift that we can do whatever we want with it's a privilege and we need to tread with with modesty and with care and respect for the Hindu tradition and so I said a few things like that and um you know I also said I, I think there are also some problems that come along with it that help perpetuate the appropriation and these are things like 200 and 300 hour teacher trainings and people seeking to be ambassadors of companies like aloe and lululemon and manduka i'm not afraid to say the names of these companies say these companies there's nothing wrong with making money i i love making money but these companies are making more money on yoga products than any yoga teacher will ever see in their entire lives and I think that there is something not right about the commercialization, which is happening. And then the yoga teachers thinking that they need these companies and to be representatives of them, to prop themselves up so they can get more students or followers or whatever. This is all like this is all happening in the West. And this is anti this is the antithesis of yoga. So anyway, I, I didn't say it so long. I said it in two sentences. But the thing about Hinduism, I feel quite strongly about that. The, you know, people don't seem to have a problem with Buddhism in America. They don't mind saying Buddhism, but they struggle to say Hinduism a lot. They'll say yogic thought or Indian thought or Indian philosophy. They won't say Hindu philosophy. And, and I understand some of the problems that people are seeing with um, that Hinduism was not really an ism and that Hindu was a name that was given to the people of India by the Persian invaders and later used by the British to define them. And I understand all that stuff, but for the most part, a large majority of the culture of India now um, who identify with the teachings of the Vedas are using the word Hindu. I think that yoga people should use that word as well. If that's how India defines itself, let India define its own narrative and not let the Westerners try to superimpose a narrative on top of that. And that's what we do a lot. And that's what white people do all the time. We impose narratives. We've been doing that for, for centuries, if not millennia. Anyway, so someone came on and went off on me, like totally went off on me. 
and called me a fascist and a Nazi and a racist, and that by supporting Hinduism and Hindu Brahmanism, I was um, encouraging the caste system and all the horrible things that have been done to lower caste people by upper caste people and like went off completely. And I understood it. And I said, hey, you know, I, I hear your anger. And um, but to call me a fascist and to call me a racist is anti-dialogue. And I'm here open to talk. And, you know, if you want to educate me, I'm here to listen. And that angered them even further. And then they they said, I'm not going to teach you with kid, treat you with kids gloves because my anger is righteous. And at the end of it, they said, you know, blah, 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 Google this, Google that. I, you know, I wish you well. And I said, thank you for all that information. I wish you well also. And that was the end of it. But honestly, I had to rewrite my comments a few times because I, I knew my initial reaction was I was getting defensive. I'm like, I wanted to say, you know, I'm not even going to say the things that I wanted to say that was defensive because that would be just me giving back into why I wanted to be defensive. But I noticed it coming up and then I was recalibrating myself to say, okay, I'm not going to defend my position. That's not how this conversation works. It works with me being here and being vulnerable and feeling this discomfort that I have and just letting it be there. So anyway, that was that. Um, I wrote to the woman whose page it occurred on, because I kind of felt bad that she had such an explosion on her page. And I said, hi, you know, that was really some, some crazy interaction we just had. And she wrote back to me and she said, yes, indeed. But you navigated with kindness in the face of ancestral pain and trauma speaking. And I was just so floored by her saying that, that she could recognize straight away that this other person who was attacking me um, wasn't attacking me. This was her ancestral pain and from generations and generations and generations of abuse and her trauma that was speaking. And um, that it was my job to be there to listen to it. And that's it. Not, you know, not to fix it, not to perpetuate it, not to change anything, to be there and listen to it. And that was, I was so grateful that this woman said that to me because now I feel like anytime there's a cultural appropriation discussion that occurs that I'm going to take part in or that I'm called to take part in, that I can always remember that even if this is a conversation with an Indian person who was born in America and raised here, that they still have ancestral pain and they still have trauma, whether it's from the color of their skin and the interactions with kids and wherever they live in middle America, they're experiencing that same trauma from, from that. And uh, to remember that at all times, as a yoga practitioner, as a white yoga practitioner, to always remember that pain. And um, so that's how I can develop my own honest empathy for, for this discussion and be there for it. Yeah, it's, man, it's quite, it's quite wild to come across those things that are controversial, but to, to hold space for that as well. And thank you for sharing that story. I'm sure that wasn't easy, but at the same time, like if you can show up for it, that's like where the work is done. And it, and I'm sure yoga 
helps you prepare for that? You know, I don't know if yoga prepares you for that. I think that you have to be prepared yourself for it. You know, I think that we need to be prepared for it. Like yoga helps, but it, it doesn't always, you know, some people just get obsessed about their yoga practice and they think they're, that their yoga is their yoga practice, you know? But I think that we have to want to show up for this conversation. Not everybody does. And we want to, we want to be part of it. And I don't think that, I honestly don't think that any um, Westerner practicing yoga should avoid this conversation or not want to be part of it because then things aren't going to get better or at least change. But I think India needs to be able to have their, and not I know people don't like it when I say things like this, but I really think that India needs to be able to have their, their own ownership of this practice. Yoga came from India, um, at least the yogas we're practicing, and uh, they need to have that privilege of the ownership of it. And um, yes, we can participate in it. So, so being a teacher, it's always, I mean, you, you teach to awaken knowledge in people, but I mean, it's always a good thing when you see your students have those light bulb moments where the practice starts to click for them. Um, whether it's like you're teaching kids and the kid who fought all the time, you see them actually catch themselves and you don't have to stop them. And they go and they sit and they breathe and they get themselves back together. Or you're working at a drug treatment center and you see someone have that revelation, like that the high that I've been looking for all the time is actually inside of me or the drug, or I know we were at mental crisis facility and it's like people who are used to taking medication to get mental stillness realize that they have the power to do that on their own once they have the right tools. Are there any like light bulb moments that have happened for you that really stand out that like kind of just, I mean, like, you know, you're not in it to, to feel good about your students, like the results are the universes, but I mean, it's still, sometimes it feels good to see the practice stick with someone that you're trying to, to awaken it in. Yeah. I'd say that most of the sort of light bulb moments where I'm just floored by the power of yoga has been either in the really hard hit public schools and seeing how the yoga has been affecting the populations there and working with the urban yogis in Queens and working with life camp in Queens and seeing the effects of all of the therapeutic wellness practices, including yoga, and how they have such a, a strong impact on people who have suffered from gun violence, either, you know, their own lives having been shot or losing people around them or coming out from incarceration and being able to come into these communities where people are concerned with their, with their mental and emotional wellness. That, those are really the things that have encouraged me the most. You mentioned a little bit earlier about your practice and, you know, I know when, when we first started getting, Atman mentioned it too, that we really focused mainly on the asanas and the pranayamas so the breath work. And, and now my practice looks completely different from when I first started, like uh, similar to you, I, I'm mainly just mantras, meditation, you know, and, and like you said, you said puja is your main thing. Now, I don't know if you started with the puja immediately or if it now has grown to that being your main thing, but I mean, how much has your practice changed since you started? And it, was there ever any like, while you're going through it, like a profound insight that you're like, as you're going through your walking your path and, and moving through this journey, you're like, wow, like this is something that I need to share. You know, I started very early off with chanting because one of the first yogas I did was Kundalini yoga. And there was a lot of chanting of mantras there. 
And I was really drawn to that. And then I went to um, Kripalu in 1987 when Amrit Desai was still there. And there was a lot of chanting that was occurring over that course of that weekend. And I loved it. And, um, you know, I felt like all the chanting of Hare Rama, Hare Krishna and people dancing around. It was like, for me, it was like going back into the mosh pit. <laughs> but it was like a spiritual mosh pit. And it reminded me of just like being in hardcore shows, you know, where you could just let loose in, in, the, in, in the pit. But here in the ashram, it was, it was total spiritual letting go. So I totally dug that, you know. And, um, <laughs> and there were not a lot of yoga uh, schools in the 1980s in New York. There were like four of them, four or five. So, but the chanting was a, a big part of what I did. And then asanas came along sort of a little bit after that. And I always did them, but chanting has always been my first love. And it remains, it remains that way. The, the asanas keep my body and my nervous system feeling good and grounded. And, and I basically do postures these days because I have, um, you know, I'm playing the long game and I'd like to live and be mobile into my, you know, late 80s or 90s or whatever it is. You know, if I make 100, great, not, no problem. But I'd like to be mobile and independent as much as possible. I'd like to be able to walk and get out of bed and make my own food and take a shower and go to the bathroom and all that. And those are things, th these are facilities that people lose really quickly when they don't take care of their bodies. So this is why I do asanas now, for the long game for my body. And that's all. And, but the aha moments, like they come all the time. They keep coming. They don't stop coming. And, as, and, you know, as long as you keep exposing yourself to people who know more than you, which is what I try to do all the time, and it's not hard to do because there are plenty of those around, that you'll, like, you'll always have aha moments because you always have the benefit of seeking someone out who's known more, who knows more than you, who's deeper in the tradition, who's traveled further, and it'll never stop. You know, it'll never stop until you're liberated. That's so amazing. I love it. I love, I love hearing you talk about that. And I love, you know, it's the infinite knowledge that you're talking about and you're constantly learning and, and you, you know, you can just pick up another text and it's like, wow, like they said it this way. I've heard this before, but not in this context. And everything is always just so mind blowing. And I'm, I, I really, that resonates with me a lot. Cause I, I feel like I have just consistent aha moments all the time as you learn from people or just learn from the universe and the experiences of life and what it's bringing to you and, and study, study, study. And, and I can hear, I can hear our, our teacher's voice saying, you will not pass this course. He always say that to us. And I know he's, he's, he's looking over. It's like, you still haven't passed the course guys. Keep going, keep going. And it's, I don't know if I ever will pass the course. Like you said, it's, it's, it's just infinite. The knowledge is, it's just so much. There's so much to learn and so much to, to just, just feed off of it's 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 incredible. It's a big part of why the practice is so near and dear. You know, it's it's amazing. I feel like another thing that our audience is gonna love hearing is how you just got in the mosh pit, the spiritual mosh pit, or like the hardcore shows. So that was that was a fun little treat. So thanks for sharing that. So one thing that I was thinking about was like you know you teaching a yoga class or like whatever teacher teaching a yoga class and something you hear at the end of class when you're like laying down and you're about to roll up your mat and walk out and go start your day is they're like now take this practice with you and what does that mean like we have like a general idea of what it could mean but like what does that mean to take the practice out off the mat like is there a version to you that stands out like do you 
I don't know. Is there a way to like redefine it that makes people understand like what does yoga look like in the world that's not just on the mat? Well, how is it that people came to think that yoga was only on the mat in the first place? Good question. Yeah. Yeah. Who said that? <laughs> yeah. Bravo. Bravo for saying that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that Atman and Ali and Andres know from their teacher that, you know, if, if you're learning in a traditional kind of a setting and you're learning ancient practices, there's, there's never an instruction that even gives you the idea that your yoga practice is contained to your yoga mat. It never comes into play. What you're looking for is a complete total transformation of being. So here you sit and you breathe quietly for five minutes. You've just transformed your being. And that means that wherever you go now, your being is transformed. And you do it because you want your existence to be transformed. There's no limitation of your, of your yoga mat there that you're even thinking of. You might not even be on a yoga mat. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> you, you, might be, you might be on a towel. You might be in a field, you know, you might be in a cave, you might be wherever. So honestly, I don't know because I was never exposed to a kind of yoga where that sort of a thing was said. I think that is a, an American invention and, and people started saying it because somehow they were giving their students the education that so much of the yoga was on this thing called a mat. And that's a misunderstanding of yoga. Okay, so I'm going to say something really critical right now. Um, so I'm just prefacing it that I, I realize this is a critical thing. But I think that people say that because we got to that place because there's a gross misunderstanding of what yoga is. And that's how you end up with, with pithy sayings like that. Because you haven't been taught properly, you haven't learned properly, you haven't given respect to the tradition where, this, where these practices come from. And if we had, then we wouldn't end up making statements like that. So now I may be completely wrong. I am frequently wrong about all these kinds of things that I get opinionated about, but I, I don't think you'd ever hear anyone in India in a yoga class there say, now take this practice off your mat because there was, you know, that wouldn't be the only thing you're doing. Um, you understand that you have this transformation of consciousness and maybe during the day also, you're doing things like service. That's a very important yoga. Or you're doing things like performing your actions without the expectation of a particular outcome. That's a very important yoga, especially when you're doing asanas, to do them without the expectation of an outcome. Or do things, everything you do is an offering to the divine, which is holding all of this creation in her arms. Do everything offering. That's an important yoga. So. I don't know. That's that's my um, that's my annoying high horse answer to, to that question. I like your annoyingness. <laughs> I love it. I love your answer. I fully agree with you. It's, I, I think I wrote that question because it's something you do here. And um, sometimes I'm just like, well, what does that like actually mean? You know, <laughs> so I was I was curious. I'm like, yeah, what does it mean? You're like a professional teacher in our eyes and so we we wanted to propose that question to you hold on what's my ranking no i'm kidding <laughs> we like you a lot <laughs> and what you say tastes very good and we resonate with a lot of it and the work that you do so 
Thanks, man. I appreciate that. That's your ranking. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. No, I appreciate that. And um, I don't see myself as a senior or anything. I just love yoga. But I do, I get judgmental. And I do think that a lot of the things that are occurring in the American yoga space are just a result of not being trained well. And I think not being trained well is comes from duration, like maybe short training, and also the marketplace. The marketplace is creating conditions that allow for this type of thing to happen. You know, the 200-hour yoga teaching standard, for example. Now, I know we are on the time limit. When I took my teacher training in India, it was a one-month-long teacher training. And so 30 days, we had about 10 hours of classes a day, um, you know, 8 to 10 hours a day. And so basically, that's pretty much a 200-hour training in one month. And then we were told, okay, now you can teach. But the places we were allowed to teach were only within the Shivananda ashram. So it was the Shivananda yoga teacher training. We weren't set free out into the world. We then were eligible to teach in the Shivananda yoga centers and in the ashrams for like the beginning level classes to get started. So there was, um, you know, this structured context. And also, we weren't paid for teaching. Teaching was seva, was service. People would pay the yoga center so the yoga center could survive, but the yoga teachers, did it as service, and we were happy to do so. And so then the training continues because you're in the atmosphere of continuing to teach. You're not getting paid. It's not a job. You know, it's not a new livelihood. It is, it's your way of continuing to let the teachings flow. And uh, even when I was teaching at Jiva Mukti, when they were first getting started down on 2nd Avenue, they originally had been on Avenue B for about a year and a half where I'd practiced, and then they moved to Second Avenue. And we were never paid for teaching there either. And we didn't want to be paid because it was, you know, it was part of the spirit of yoga to freely teach, to do your best and do it. But then the marketplace changed. Yoga became a profession. And in order for it to become a profession, there needed to be trainings. And the trainings quite often uh, became expensive. And then as yoga got more and more popular in the late 1990s and into the, especially into the, the 2000s, uh, the yoga trainings were the things that would really provide the financial sustenance for schools to survive. And because yoga classes wouldn't cut it, but teacher trainings would give them enough income to survive. I mean, I'm sympathetic to that. It's not easy to pay rent and to, to live as a yoga teacher. And to be able to do so is, is honestly a blessing. I'm very grateful that I can teach yoga for a living. And so the teacher trainings kind of almost became like a necessary, I'm not going to say necessary evil, but a, a necessary cash flow. And then all of a sudden, when you have more and more schools doing that, you have a lot of teachers coming out into the world who maybe only had a 200-hour training, and then they started teaching, and they didn't have a lot of follow-up or support after that to continue with their education. And then if the training is, you know, not so focused on all the different limbs, but focused on how to teach a yoga class, maybe certain knowledge isn't transmitted or isn't dwelled on for long enough. Because, for example, to understand something from the Yoga Sutras or the Bhagavad Gita takes years. The first time I read either of those texts, I didn't understand a word. And I'm still, I have this one, this one Yoga Sutra commentary by Hari Harananda that I've been reading for over a decade. And there's still so many things in it that I don't understand, that I, that I meditate on and that 
So it's a real long process of understanding. So when we talk about the long haul, like that's what it is. That's why yoga can never be just on your mat because this is a long haul practice where you're going to be learning and thinking and studying and, and questioning all throughout your life. As long as you realize I still only understand one grain of sand of this. And that one grain of sand makes me pretty happy, but I know there's more for me to open up to. And, and that doesn't just happen if I only relegate myself to, to this one idea. So yoga is a transformation of consciousness. And a transformation of consciousness is occurring throughout our lives. And it's going to come at unexpected times. And that doesn't mean that everything is a yoga. Not everything is a yoga. Uh, it just means that the learning never stops. And that's why I think that education is so important in Hinduism and in the sacred texts and in yoga, that education is so important so that we don't misrepresent. And we, we start misrepresenting when we think we know, and then when we start marketing that, then it gets dangerous. Uh, and yoga is a big industry so in, in America, and it needs marketing. And uh, to propel it along, part of that marketing language comes from a lack of depth of understanding. That's my short answer right there. So we need to be modest as we move forward and appreciative and grateful and respectful of this grand tradition. And we're going to make mistakes, meaning we, when I say we, I mean, I am going to, I assume other people will too, but I'm going to make mistakes. I'm hopefully going to correct them and then not repeat them even though I usually do repeat them anyway, the problem with mistakes. Shall not pass. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You will not pass this test because there is no test. <laughs> you know, I think it is so important. And I'm hoping, you know, that one day, one day we'll be able to say, because you said it, you said it once today when you're talking and I've said it thousands of times when I'm talking where we won't have to say, when I say yoga, I include meditation. Yeah. Right. I can't yeah. wait for the day that we don't have to say that anymore. You know, like this, this, this misrepresentation of it, it's incredible. And and I heard you say it earlier and I'm like, I know he doesn't like saying that either. You know, like <laughs> like you have to like like we have to remind people that it's part of it, you know, like, come on. And it, it is because the commercialization of it makes you just think of just Lululemon and yoga mats and bending and stretching. And that's it. And there's so much more. Yeah. You know, it's incredible. And we did that, you know, we did that yeah. here. We did that. All right. So uh, the way we end our uh, podcast off with all of our guests is, you know, asking a simple question. Uh, you know, we're big love bugs, love zombies. Uh, you know, love is very important to us. What does that word mean to you? What does love mean to me? What is yes, a love sir. bug? Like Herbie the love bug? <laughs> <laughs> or just love in general. What, what does that mean to you if I say that word? Oh my God, that's your simple question? Simple question. I know you can knock this one off the box. Oh man, tell me what does love mean to you? Love means, I mean, I know it has to do uh, with one of the aspects of bhakti to me, of bhakti yoga. You know, I, the way one of the uh, elements of that our teacher told us is kind of like the word respect and breaking that word down, like read again, inspect to look at. And it's like, Basically, when you see somebody's physical appearance, you see their physical body, their their vehicle. But then if you look again, like the podcast, you see that light, which is in you, which is in me, which is in blades of grass, which is in the animal. So, you know, you tread lightly and respect everything and have empathy uh, for everything. So to me, 
you know, that is an aspect of love. But like you said, it's such a vast word uh, to try to describe. Beautiful. What about you, Ali? To me, I think love is about acceptance and not expecting anything in return. I think a lot of people, when they think of love, they get kind of uh, attached or infatuated with parts of people. And they think that they're falling out of love when they start to see the whole person. I don't think that's a part of it. I feel like love is a deeper spiritual thing, like a connection where a lot of what I was talking about, about seeing that light in yourself and other people. But I think you have to accept the entire being. I think you're supposed to love um, one of our good friends could say you should love like the sun, like the sun warms everything. The sun gives to everything. The sun produces life and the sun wants nothing in return. Like you just give your love from deep inside your soul. And that's, that's, that's what love is to me. Beautiful. Andres, this is really sneaky how you asked all of us so you can start thinking of your answer. I see what you're doing here. I see what you're doing here. All right. (laughs) Short and sweet love is, I would say. It just is. I think it's the the unifying force in the universe. Beautiful. David, what about you? Man, love is kind of like an idea of encompassing a feeling, strong, positive emotions towards something, someone but I think real deep love is making decisions or feelings in best cooperation with others. So you're not basing it on yourself. So it's like when people talk about unconditional love is I'm doing something because it's for your benefit and I'm willing to work with my ego thinking what it should be. So I think love has this like, everyone wins kind of vibe. Everything works out. Water going to the lowest gravity. It's like, that's where we should be starting. And yeah, hopefully that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> what, what about you? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I would, um, maybe I would say that um, love is a seeing of yourself and the other and seeing the other in yourself. And maybe I'd also say that love is a a continual giving of yourself without ever getting tired. You know, sometimes you give and you you exhaust yourself, but with love, maybe you, it's an eternal and endless giving without ever getting tired because it's an inexhaustible force. I like that. That was beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. Awesome. You know, as Andre said, I needed some time, so thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It worked out. Such such a pleasure speaking with you. Like we, you might have to be our yogi advisor or like our look again yogi advisor. Yeah, you got to be on more. Yeah. more. This is not your only time coming and talking with us. Too this easy. Was profound. It was awesome. This was so fun, and we don't get enough time to hang out with each other anyway. So this was super <laughs> great. Not at all, man. Yeah. Yeah, I can't wait till Corona goes somewhere so we can actually, you know, see you in person and hang and, you know, connect on the physical and spiritual and energetic level. Absolutely. Baltimore, here I come. Definitely, definitely. And give our love to the urban yogis, man. Like, we miss those guys, too. And, you know, I'm sure they're thriving uh, with your support and, you know, their energy. They're opening up a cafe in Queens near the housing development where they live called the Dream Cafe. Wow. And there can be like, a whole, you know, the main healthy food and um, wellness oriented place in, in that whole area. So they're changing the, the food desert. That's beautiful, man. You hear that, listeners? If you're in New York and you're in Queens, check out the Dream Cafe. Make it happen. Absolutely. 
Awesome. So, yeah, thank you so much. All right, man. Love you so much. Uh, thank you. Thank you for your time, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. Take care. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Look Again Podcasts. Please feel free to share this content with your friends and community. Also, please consider donating to our Patreon page. You can find us at patreon.com and search for Look Again Podcasts. Anything helps and we really appreciate your visit. Thank you so much.